Hey everyone, you're listening to Operation Dichotomy. I'm Paul, I'm your host, and we are the bridge between perception and reality. Today, I have a very special guest here with us that's going to share a little bit about her story. And I'm, I'm excited because it's a unique story, but at the same time, it's not as unique as we might think it is. It's just that people don't talk about it as much as they should. Um, well, I think they should. But this young lady today, <laughs> she is here to just be open and vulnerable about some of the things that she's gone through. And hopefully the people that are listening will be able to expand their perspective into her world a little bit. So without further ado, today we have Tanya Jackson O'Neill all the way from Georgia, except she's not here in California. She's just joining us online. But anyways, uh, she is a personal trainer. She is a soon-to-be author, published author, very famous, hopefully. So I can say I know a published author. And she is a mother. And one random thing, Tanya, that I want to share about you that I didn't think I told you before, but um, you guys can't see, but she has some of the coolest eyes I've ever seen in my life. Um, They're very like a a clear, bluish, greenish. I I just got to see it. So I don't know if it's a photographer, if they're good at editing or whatever, but every time I see a picture of you, you have really really cool eyes and i mean that in a very non-creepy way just very objective it's it's amazing so anyways without further ado welcome tanya thank you so much for your time today how you doing oh great thank you so much i really appreciate you having me today it's awesome so excited <laughs> i'm glad um because because we don't have too much time and i know you have so much wisdom that you can share let's let's get right into it if you don't mind. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. So Tanya, um, today we want to talk about your, your story a little bit. And I know that this is the content of your book as well, but just go ahead and share a little bit about your background and maybe you can just dive right into the story and I'll just butt in and ask you questions every once in a while. That's okay. Uh, that sounds fantastic. Great. All right. um, so I'll backtrack just a little bit. I have two older uh, children from a prior marriage. My oldest is 19 and my youngest is 16. Um, after divorce, I followed up with a new relationship, being that I was quite a bit older um, than Luke. I was sort of toying with having more children and to bring it forward a little bit, we decided that we would start trying to have children. We dated for about four years. And through that, um, I thought, you know, I don't really know how quickly I'm going to get pregnant the first time around. Second time around, we're really simple. I was a lot younger. I was, I think, right around 38 um, when all this was going on and we were toying with the idea. So I was what is considered high, uh, high risk being older, although super healthy because I've always been in the fitness industry. I have always worked out. I was an athlete in school. I've always played tennis. So being in the gym six to seven days a week was normal for me. So I've always been super athletic, great health, you know, very cognizant of, you know, health and wellness, foods, nutrition, things like that. So I really didn't think that I would have any issues getting pregnant. Well, it ended up taking me, I would say, almost a year um, of trying to get pregnant. 
And um, fast forward a little bit, super excited come May of 2012 when I found out I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, pregnancy was going really good. I didn't have any issues other than your normal weight gain, just, you know, the normal mom symptoms that you have. Mm -hmm. you, you know, little cravings here and there, <laughs> but nothing out of the norm. And um, about September, mid-September, we attended a wedding and I actually started to bleed. And from that point on, I thought, well, this is not normal, but I had not had that happen prior. So I thought, well, I'm just going to monitor this and see how it's going. I'm not really sure. You know, it was the unknown that was so difficult. Well, do I go to the hospital? Do I go to the doctor? What do I do? Do I just sort of play it out and see maybe it was a little, just a fluke thing. Hmm. And so I thought, I'm just going to wait. This is a Saturday. I'm going to wait a couple of days just to see, and I can always make an appointment Monday. Next day, Sunday rolls around, completely gone. No problems at all. Didn't see any more spotting whatsoever. And so I thought, okay, it was just, one of those random, I don't know, who knows? Hmm. Um, so I can remember one afternoon I was watching television, sitting on the sofa, and I had the urge to go pee. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I jump up, I run to the bathroom wall. I didn't make it. Hmm. Literally, I ended up peeing all over myself shower, clean up, thought that was so strange. I actually laughed at myself and thought, oh, wow, this is so funny. I, okay, that sudden urge was quick. And I think I was probably about 20 weeks at that point. I knew I was having a boy. We'd already done the ultrasounds and did the 3D ultrasounds and picked names and um, we're super excited. And so after that happened, didn't think anything else about it. Next week rolls around and it just sort of hit me one day when I was laying in the bed that my stomach felt hard, like almost like a solid basketball, just very firm. And to me that was out of the norm because you should have some softness and squishy and you should always feel the baby moving around at some point. And so I thought, gosh, this is so strange. Mm -hmm. And I laid there with my hands on my stomach and thought, well, my son's name is Beckett. I thought, gosh, I'm going to see if I can get him to move around. So I'm sort of trying to wiggle him, move him inside. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't working. So I thought, well, all right, I'm going to call my doctor and let her know what's going on and then go ahead and back, backtrack and tell her about the bleeding. And so she ends up putting me on a week bed rest at home. And I thought, all right, that's fine. We'll manage with this. As difficult as it is staying at home, I'm going to do it. Well, it just didn't resolve the issues. I just, it was something was wrong. I just felt it. I knew it. it he wasn't moving. It. I just was uncomfortable. So I ended up calling back and saying, I know something's wrong. My stomach just, it feels so hard. Well, go to the doctor, come to find out when I had that mad dash to the restroom, mm -hmm. my water broke. Ooh. 
So I didn't realize that that was what had happened because with my oldest sons, they broke my water when I went, it was sort of pre-planned a little bit. So they actually broke my water. So I never, you know, had ruptured membranes on my own. Mm -hmm. So I had gone a week, week and a half without having any amniotic fluid. So Beckett, the reason why my stomach was so hard was because I didn't have any cushioning. He didn't have anything to swim around in. Oh. There was nothing for him to float in. And so I immediately went to um, the labor and delivery from there, from the doctor's office. And from that point was a complete roller coaster ride. I stayed in the hospital for 21 days. And while in the hospital was every single day was something different. Um, you know, you go through those emotional, just it's a roller coaster ride because you don't know what's going to happen. You're prayful and you, you know, pray that you can make it. So I knew that I needed to make it 25 weeks. I, I went in at 21 weeks. I knew I needed to make it to 25 weeks because mm -hmm. they, um, the doctors, had me sign a do not resuscitate order. So that was in place until the 25 week mark. So from 25 weeks on, if Beckett were born, then they would at least try to revive him. Mm -hmm. Had it been prior to the 25 weeks, then they wouldn't have done anything. That's so true. that was very difficult to understand and accept. Yeah. Hold on a second. Okay. Um, just because I, have, okay, so my wife is an OBGYN and okay. she's pregnant. And so I understand a lot of, I tracked all that. <laughs> but I Good. imagine a lot of people who either have not been pregnant or they're a, your average man, right? Because sure. what do we know? Right. Uh, nothing. <laughs> there's, there's just some stuff I want to clarify in terms okay. of um, the, the bleeding. And so that's, all that can be considered a quote unquote normal part of pregnancy. So there wasn't, a lot of, um, it's like you said, right? There wasn't a lot of cause for panic or cause for anything crazy in response at this time. Like, oh, this could be explained away by your average part of pregnancy. Is that correct? I think so. I mean, okay. at the time I understood that, I mean, you know, I guess it depends on who you ask, to be honest, because mm -hmm. for me, not having ever experienced any type of bleeding or spotting or anything during pregnancy, mm -hmm. I just felt as if I needed just to give it a little time and see if it continued. I didn't feel a sense of panic at that point. Okay. Um, learning a little bit more as time has gone on, it's definitely something that women should have looked at mm -hmm. and just to be on the safe side. Gotcha. But again, I thought, well, I'll just wait and see. Let's just see if it goes away. And it mm. did. So of course then I really didn't think much about it. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so the other thing is the 25 weeks DNR uh, do, do not resuscitate. Um, I think Again, correct me if I'm wrong, because this is from many conversations that I've had with my wife, but there comes a point of quote unquote viability where if your baby passes that 
that mark of 25 weeks pregnancy, then they can survive outside of the womb. Is that also what that was? Well, you know, interestingly, again, I've learned because technology has come so far with what doctors can do inside of the hospital. Um, yes. So 25 weeks, under 25 weeks has always been iffy. Now there are babies that have been born at 22, 23, 24 weeks that have survived and have been quote unquote, you know, a normal child. Hmm. Um, having said that, I did learn when I was in the hospital that I think is very interesting. The rate of boys and girls is different. So girls that are born earlier than 25 weeks have a higher um, chance of living. Oh, Boys do not. Huh. So I felt like I was sort of in, you know, already knew I was in, in the bad, if you will, mm. um, because I knew that I was having a boys. But girls' viability is greater than boys. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Um, so I thought, oh, great. <laughs> this is not good for me. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Sorry, continue. I just wanted to okay. kind of get no, everybody no, no. on the same I think page. It's yeah. Wonderful. Um, yeah, because like I, I've you know I've learned and read and tried to understand a lot of what now, especially writing a book about it, um, mm. understand a lot of what the terms were and how it correlates with my pregnancy. So at twenty five weeks, um, and and I'll backtrack just a little bit too as far as the hospital stay. Um, I really have to. <laughs> That was tough. I mean, it was because when I tell you I was on bed rest in the hospital, I was on bed rest. I could not get up out of that bed, but once a week, Ooh. I was able to get up once a week for five minutes to wash my hair and shower. That was it. Oh um, I had a bedpan that sat next to me because I was drinking a lot of water on top of having saline pumped in me um, just to try to give Beckett a little bit of fluids, even though we knew it, they, there's no way to repair a, a torn, um, membrane. So it wasn't like I was going to be able to hold in the fluids. They flushed out, you know, almost immediately, mm -hmm. but we were, you know, something in my mind was better than nothing. You're trying so desperately to do whatever you possibly can do to save your child. And that's uh -huh. where I was. So, um, so my goal was 25 weeks, at least the first goal. Now, of course, you know, my mind, if I could make it to 40 weeks, I was happy um, because I knew that at least, you know, every day, every week that passed, he had a better chance of having a quote unquote normal life outside of the womb. Um, because again, at 25 weeks, lungs aren't developed. Your heart's not developed. There's so many things, the brain, everything is just, it's not ready. It's, it's not time. That's why there's a 40 week gestation. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I made it to 25 weeks. I was so excited. I thought, yes, finally they're going to, you know, lift this order because in, how, you know, how can you lay there for, well, I had been there 
you know, 21 days total, but I'm thinking, how do I lay here and fight my fight and do everything that I humanly possible can do, but to know that, that my child may be born before the 25 week mark and then they don't do anything for him. So I struggled with that. And I understood, again, in the reason for why, um, you know, you don't want your child to suffer being born too early and you don't want them to be in a, you know, a vegetative state either and not have any cognizant and awareness. And, you know, it's so, it's so, so difficult. So I made it 25 weeks super excited. Um, and then the next day was 25 weeks, one day. And I can remember my doctor came in and she said, his heart rate's crashing. We've got to take him now. And I thought, "Mm -mm, no, it's not time. (laughs) We're not ready. I can't do this. Um, but you know, what do you, okay, you know, let's go, let's see what happens. So they wheel me down to the OR. And of course, at this time, they wouldn't allow Luke to be into the operating room with me. So that was very difficult because I'm thinking, how am I going to do this on my own? He had been there with me the whole time. How do I, how do I do this? How do I, I don't know. So the anesthesiologist came in and explained the, um, the epidural block that, you know, how the procedure was going to go and what to expect. And he, um, he asked me, he said, what about dad? And I said, well, they, they told me that he couldn't come into the room and it was just such a high risk situation, I guess. And he said, well, would you like me to stay with you? And I said, yes, absolutely. Um, so he stood he sat next to me, held my hand and I just cried the whole time. I, there wasn't a sound that came out. Of, I mean, I just was so numb. It was so unreal. I just couldn't wrap my head around what was going on. And then your mind is going, you know, is he going to, is he going to be alive? Is he not going to be alive? Is he going? It's just a whirlwind. So he was born and they immediately whisked him off to the NICU and I never got to see him actually from at all. Um, that's in my book as well. Uh, I struggled with that for a while um, because he ultimately stayed in the NICU for two days. And then I was in severe pain from the C-section. I had a, a I had the, C-section that wasn't very common because he was so small. So I was, the pain was just, it was unreal. So long story short about that was the second day, he was born on October the 19th, 2012, October the 21st, 2012, the doctors came in and said, you need to go see him. He's not going to make it. And I said, I can't, I, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know. Do I go? Do I not go? I'm, I'm so torn. I'm trying to get up and get out and try to get there. And ultimately I decided that I didn't want to go. I, I didn't want to watch my child die. Hmm. Hold on. No, okay. <laughs> um, I'm trying to do so well today. <laughs> <laughs> Without any tears, it's hard. Um, 
But ultimately, I said, I just can't do this. I can't. I just can't watch him die. And I had not seen him other than when they, you know, physically took him out and placed him in the bassinet the day of the C-section. And so, I mean, it may have been 10 minutes later, he was gone. And they came back up and told us. And so that was another setback in my mind because it wasn't at all what I had been praying for for the last 21 days. And I was so hopeful. I stayed so positive um, through all the emotional roller coasters that I was on that, you know, semi depression that you go through just laying there and there's just, your mind starts really playing tricks on you when you really start conjuring up stories and what ifs and things. And why didn't you go to the hospital on that day when you were bleeding? Maybe that would have prevented it. And, you know, just the regret of maybe I should have done this and maybe I should have done this. And, you know, it's, it's all so difficult in your own mind. Mm. Um, but of course you make the best decision that you know during that time too. So I have to be at peace with that point. And so he passed and then um, I remember they have a little room for um, you know, the bereaved parents to go in and visit with their child and sit. And I got into my wheelchair, made it down to the room and I saw Beckett laying in that bassinet and I didn't have any desire to hold him because in my mind, he, he was gone. His body lay there, but he wasn't there anymore. And because I had not physically seen him alive, I didn't want to hold him after he had already passed. Mm. Um, so, I decided that I would say my goodbyes from the doorway and I have made peace with that decision because again, it's so quick. You have to do everything in such a fast time. You know, you don't have enough time to really think about things. It's you need to do this now and you need to do this and you need to go see him. And, but I, I'm a thinker. I need to, Time. I need to process and I need to decide what I'm going to do. And I didn't have that time. So you just do the best you can. And that's what I did. Mm. And from that point, we ended up having him cremated. And um, he stays with me all the time. He's always with me. Mm. <laughs> he stays in a beautiful urn. And, but you know, the difficult thing is that I, it's so taboo. That's, that's why I feel so, why I feel it's so important to speak out because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable conversation. I learned more about how uncomfortable it was and still is afterwards more than during how uncomfortable it is to other people how to respond to you when you tell them that your child has passed. Mm. And it's, it's just a difficult situation overall. And, but it happens. It's and the average. And I, it's, I would like to know if that's changed, but they, the averages it's one in four women 
parents, families mm-hmm. either have a miscarriage, stillborn, infant loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a lot of people that deal with loss, but nobody really discusses it. It's yeah. quiet. So let's talk about this for a bit because, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for sharing. I know it's not an easy topic to share. And most people don't have the level of vulnerability that you have. So number one, thank you. And can't wait for your book to come out because this is what it's going to be about. Um, but that being said, the, the whole point of this, this show and of what we're trying to do here at Operation Dichotomy in general is to shed light into things that aren't really talked about, kind of like this. And so when you mentioned that it was taboo, I was like, yes, it is taboo. And that's why we're trying to talk about it. But um, I actually looked up some statistics right before we started recording, so I wouldn't sound like a fool. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's one study by the Mayo Clinic. They said that 10 to 20% of known pregnancies end in miscarriage. So 10 to 20% of known pregnancies, first of all, that's a lot, right? That's anywhere right. from one in 10 to one in five. However, that being said, there was an so it said known pregnancies. And in another study that I just quickly read about, it said that uh, most pregnancies, they happen, uh, no, no, most miscarriages happen within the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, which means that people don't even know they're pregnant. And sometimes it'll just come out as a heavy flow or heavy period. Um, if you're a man, you're not sure what that means, go look it up. Or <laughs> don't, don't look it up because you'll find some weird stuff. But just, <laughs> a lot of times, the point being that Women and, and men, they don't know when a woman is pregnant because it's so early and the miscarriage happens so early. And so one of the statistics actually said that almost 50% of pregnancies potentially end in miscarriage. So it's, it's so common, right? And, yes. But like you said, people, people don't talk about it. And so a question I have for you, Tanya, is when you were going through that period, um, the, the emotional roller coaster that you must have gone through is is insane, right? There's the joy of pregnancy. And then the, the sadness or the fear of, you know, water breaking early and, you know, what happens to the child. And then you're working so hard to get to week 25 and you make it and then it goes back up. And then the next day, like, oh, we got to take them. It's just up and down, up and down. That's, I can't even imagine. Uh, but during that period and also the period afterwards, when you're talking about um, I guess having to share it with people. Did you did you feel like you were uh, you were alone? Like you you were the only one that's gone through this, or I guess I'm trying to get into your mindset here. Did you feel like you were alone? I was alone. <laughs> okay. I'm just gonna be honest. I was alone. I, um, in fact, this podcast today and one other time are they really the only times that I have opened up about my story. Mm. Um, writing the book is very, very, very detailed. Um, but I would venture to say that there's not one single person um, that will say, oh, I already knew that. Or I knew that's what she went through. Not one person. I think every single person that reads that book, even the people that knew I was in the hospital, will say, wow, I had no idea. I had no idea. 
So I, I, I felt I was alone. Now, you know, a lot of that was probably my choice because I'm private. I'm an only child. Um, I don't, I don't have a big family. I don't, my parents were only children. I don't have any aunts or uncles. Um, so I've always been very independent and one of those types of people that just does things on my own. I try to figure things out. I try to resolve issues amongst myself, if you will. So, but in terms of being alone, I, I really was alone um, because nobody understands. Nobody that I knew had experienced this type of loss mm. and nobody knows what to say. They don't know how to act when you're around. Do, are they supposed to be happy? Are they supposed to be sad? Do they talk about your child? Do they not talk about your child? Yeah. If I talk about him, is she going to be upset? If I, and it's just, it's, it's difficult because I understand that nobody knows what to say mm-hmm. and it makes you feel alone for sure. I mean, I seriously could get so emotional about this because it's, because not only do you go through all that, but you try to repair your, your life once it's over and sort of get back to a norm, but you can't because your friends and family don't know how to treat you. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like you've isolated yourself because they've isolated you. They don't, they just ignore things. There were so many times where I would try to go to functions with a group of people. And of course I had high anxiety about being around people for a, for a long time. Um, but I felt alone at big events where people were my friends and because you're just, nobody knows how to, how to treat you anymore. You're different. Uh, You've become different in their eyes. So I think this is huge potentially because the people, like you said, they have no idea how to respond. And I think the line that they don't want to, okay, from my perspective, I wouldn't want to cross a line of offending you or saying the wrong thing just out of fear of she's going through this hard life circumstance. I don't want to make it worse. Now, from your perspective, looking back to where you were at, is there even a right thing to say or should we not say anything? What do you think is a way that we can help someone like that? No, I, even in my book I wrote, I encourage anyone, if you know someone, a friend, family, whomever it is that has lost a child or, you know, whatever the circumstances are, um, you know, to reach out, to call them, to check on them, to make sure they're okay. Talk about their child. They, we want to, I wanted to talk about it. I, I, I needed to discuss what happened, but I don't want to put myself or make someone uncomfortable by telling and sharing what I experienced without someone reaching out and implying or telling me that they want to know. Right. Okay. So, but I encourage anyone that has someone in their life that has experienced this to talk about it, to just check in, make sure they're okay, to anything that you feel would be helpful to that person, do it because they will appreciate you. And I will say that if, if it's not the right time, then they will tell you, hmm. they will say, I don't want to talk about it. 
Okay. And that's an easier fix to me than just being ignored. If I didn't want to talk about it, I'd just say, I don't want to talk about it right now. Can we talk about it later? And something like that versus feeling so isolated in a group of people that were my friends and family because they didn't know. And I don't fault them for that at all. Uh, you know, I, I understand. I and, and I was probably in that situation or have been in that situation over the years as well. In the same point where you just don't know what to say or what, how to act or what to do. But now being on the other side of it, it is one of those where, that person will say, I don't want to discuss it. Or can we talk about it later mm. versus feeling alone? Okay. So for someone that's not going through it, wanting to, wanting to basically show their love to their loved ones, go ahead and ask, but be okay with not being rejected in a sense of just talking about it, but just continue to love and be there for them. Yes, absolutely. Now, for, for someone. So for the woman who has lost a child recently, um, what would you what would you advise for them because we've kind of addressed the outsider's perspective of how we should either bring up or or approach the topic like would you encourage women to to talk about it to to well i think it's so it's so individual um i mean there's lots of resources uh whether that's finding a book to read um there's social media groups. There are outlets for women, parents, even grandparents, sisters, brothers, you know, things like that. Um, because again, I seem to do everything alone. <laughs> mm. This was another one of, I tried um, social media groups. I did read some books. Um, so I have those uh, resources available in my book that were helpful, but I found that for me being in the large groups, whether it be Facebook or, you know, um, groups of loss, it was difficult for me to read other people's stories because I had not healed myself. Mm -hmm. So it didn't work for me, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people in these groups that have lost and that's not to say it doesn't work. I encourage anyone that has experienced loss to find your outlet, to find what works for you. Um, I do think that sharing your story when someone asks is very therapeutic. It makes it real. It, you know, it's not, it's not that it wasn't. It is, but you want people to know what you've gone through and to understand the magnitude of whether it's a miscarriage and how you feel, or if it's a stillbirth, or if it's an infant loss, or any child for that matter. You want people to empathize and understand that this is your reality mm -hmm. and it's difficult. Yeah. I had a hypothesis earlier i don't know if this is correct so i'm going to ask you to correct me or not um i feel like a part of the reason why some women might not want to share about miscarriage besides the obvious the hurting aspect of losing a child is there ever a hint of shame or guilt like something i did or didn't do resulted in 
this miscarriage at all? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, in my case, there was a lot of guilt. Um, a lot of, it goes back to, well, I should have gone to the doctor. I should have, you know, I was playing tennis. Maybe I shouldn't have been playing tennis. Oh, maybe I shouldn't be at the gym every day. Maybe, you know, all those. But at the end of the day, my take personally on what happened to me with Beckett is that God had a plan. Hmm. His plan was he wanted Beckett and he needed me to experience this, go through this for some reason. And I've always said that his plan is greater than mine. Hmm. So, and you know, you go through those times where you're thinking, I don't know what this plan is all about. Why did he do this? Why me? And we may never know. I may never know. Maybe I am where I'm supposed to be right now talking about this. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is the purpose for me. But for those that might not feel that same way, you may never know why you experienced a loss when you did and how you did. But for me, it was the peace of knowing that God was the almighty and had the plan Mm -hmm. and it was his decision. And I did everything humanly possible that I could physically do. So looking back, if you were to tell your younger self or see your younger self in that position, would you tell her to not be ashamed or feel guilty? Because at the end of the day, from what I understand, it's not really... I mean, there's obvious cases where like, you know, if you're punching your stomach every day, then it's your fault. But for the most part, it's, it's almost random, right? So it's not something that women should be ashamed and guilty of. Right. Yes. Okay. And it is. And there, you know, even after, you know, after weeks and things, I had to go back to my doctor and, you know, check on this, um, c-section and you know get checked out from the doctor and it it, it, there was no rhyme or reason there was Mm. i I don't know i don't i don't understand why me why it was why it happened the way it did i don't know i don't know why and there and i will never know Mm -hmm. but i don't feel i don't feel guilt about it i don't feel ashamed um because it was out of my control I can only do so much. And that was just the way that it was written for me. I think what's really cool about you and your story is that it happened, but it's not debilitating to you, but you are rolling with the punches. Obviously it still hurts and it's something that you had to struggle through, but now it's something that you are able to own as part of your story and use it almost to have a positive impact on people around you. So let's go there for a second, right? You're writing your book and you're sharing your story there. I guess if you could tell us a little bit about what, what's your bigger, bigger purpose, greater mission, what do you want to do with the, with your story and your life? So right now I feel led um, to do some speaking events. I really this book has propelled my outlook and as well as this podcast, it, it just makes me to makes me realize that 
that is my purpose. And I need to talk about this because it is just so taboo. It's just, you know, it's one of those where you have to be uncomfortable to be comfortable. Mm. And I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable talking about my loss. I am. I'm not going to lie about it. It is. It's difficult. Um, you know, there's so much that I want to share, but then there's things that I think, well, that's too much information right now, uh, because it's so detailed. It's so you know, 21 days is. It's it's not that long in the big scheme of things, but oh my goodness, 21 days lying in the hospital on bed rest where you can't do anything. It was emotional, yeah. and. You know, so I feel just so compelled to just share and and have the experience and, and talk to other ladies and parents and moms and sisters and grandparents that have experienced this and hug them and, mm. you know, just feel that I can relate. Yeah. They're not alone. Right. They're not alone. Um, I think that's... That's one of the most important things. Anybody going through any hardship, right? Like someone has been through it and now they're with you, right? They don't have a solution. There's no solution to losing a child. Like it's going right. to, no matter how quote unquote normal or common it is, it's still, it is what it is. It's going to break your heart. But it says something when somebody who's been through it already is walking with you, knowing, knowing your pain. And, um, Oh man, I'm excited for your book to come out and I think it's going to change a lot of lives. It's going to change a lot of the outlook and the way that women and men think about miscarriage and pregnancy and children and life in general. And um, I'm excited for it, Tanya. Thank you. I am too. I am so uh, excited. <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, um, I, I want people to be able to connect with you because of everything we just said. But there's so much more depth to your story and this topic. There's no way we could cover it in one podcast episode. But for everyone listening, Tanya has graciously agreed to have her information, let's just call it information, um, social security number, credit card. Yeah, I that, <laughs> I but um, <laughs> Tanya, where can people reach out to you and find you if they if they just want to learn and connect with you? Sure, absolutely. So on both social media sites, um, Facebook and Instagram, if you just type in my whole name, I will pop up. Um, it's because my first name is spelt so unusual. There's not, not a whole lot. How do you spell of it? Me. So mm -hmm. it's T-O-N-I-A and then Jackson, J-A-C-K-S-O-N. Last name is O'Neill, which is O-N-E-I-L-L. So another, you know, different, just makes it a little bit easier to find me. <laughs> um, and I also have a website. My website right now is more fitness related. It's more personal training related. It's www.tanyaoneal.com. Uh, however, as I transition um, a little bit out of personal training and following my heart with my book and speaking events, I will transition my website as well, but you can certainly still find me on there, get in touch with me and through any of my social media sites. Okay. So just to clarify for everyone, that's T-O-N-I-A, very unique, T-O-N-I-A. That's Tanya, not Tonya or Tanaya or whatever else you want to say. <laughs> and then O'Neill is O-N-E-I-L-L, -L, two L's. Um, if you ever get lost, just look for the clear blue-green eyes that are... <laughs> 
really cool. <laughs> oh, sweet. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's true. And uh, last question. I don't know if you were able to think about it during this deep conversation, but um, what what is one thing that is weird or unique about you, Tanya? I am so stumped by this. I'm so boring. (laughs) I am. I am such a boring person. I feel like I don't have anything unique. I mean, you know, I think about, well, I'm a left-handed person. I play sports. I've, you know, always been an athlete. I modeled for years. I was on a billboard in downtown Atlanta. Um, That's not really quirky. It's just something that happened. Uh, yeah, I don't know. my dad's from Georgia. My mom's from Austria. So I'm a little bit German and a little bit Southern. Uh-huh. Were you <laughs> um, born, in, born in Georgia? I was born in Georgia. Yes. Uh-huh. I've always uh-huh. been here um, all my life. So I've traveled to overseas and I visited where my mom was born. But um, yeah, I've always been in Georgia. The Southern draw just comes out. I can't mm-hmm. fix it. It's very cool. Very cool. <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I can't think of anything super quirky about me. Well, I think you just listed five cool things. So that's, <laughs> okay. that's pretty All good. Right. And just go. so everybody knows, it's not like we were unprepared for this. She, she thought about it, but unique people sometimes don't recognize their own uniqueness for better or for worse. But thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh man. I really wish we could go longer, but as usual, we have run out of time. Um, for everyone listening, I really do hope you guys, I know you guys enjoyed today, not in the sense where it made you super happy, but because you learned something new. Uh, maybe you have heard of people or know people in your life personally that have gone through uh, this kind of loss, or maybe they're going through it. I don't know. Um, but I know that now you are a little bit more prepared on how to love those around you without being awkward and not being afraid of the boundaries that you kind of set up for yourselves. Um, so if, if you learned anything, I think, I think we accomplished what we tried to do today, Tanya. We taught a little bit about how to interact with others and open up perspectives. And hopefully that leads to a better understanding and empathy in the everyday life. So that being said, uh, if you want to connect with us already, uh, please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. If it's awesome, then leave us a great review. Uh, which I'm sure you will, right? <laughs> if you yes. made it this far. Um, if, if you're not following us on Instagram, we're at Operation Dichotomy as usual, operationdichotomy.com. Please go ahead and sign up for a newsletter as well. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate, appreciate your time, Tanya and the audience. Until next time, everyone.